Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 287. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Marvel Studios' Secret Invasion, episode 3, Betrayed, directed by Ali Salim, written by Roxanne Paredes and Brian Tucker. Uh, Secret Invasion was created for television by Kyle Bradstreet, and it is a Kevin Feige production. Before our spoiler review begins, want to let you know once again about Fan Show Plus. That is a podcast that is exclusive to premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. If you search for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel, you can find it there. And that's where we talk about extra MCU topics like Jennifer Garner reprising the role of Elektra in Deadpool 3. So make sure you go to patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or look for Fan Show Plus on Apple Podcasts so that you can check out that episode and more. Also, make sure you're following us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Twitter, on Instagram, and yes, on Threads. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their review. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? I am doing very well. My voice is pretty much almost back now after losing it last week, which because I lost my voice, I had to watch my daughter that Monday. Uh, I missed saying happy birthday to you uh, last week, and I felt very bad about that. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to wait until we record the episode so I can just, just tell you all the things I was going to say on Twitter so everyone can hear me audibly say it. I am very glad you were born so many years ago, Sean. 40. It was 40. Yeah. You can say it. <laughs> because my life would be lesser if you weren't. So I just appreciate you like crazy. Love you, brother. And I'm just glad you were born. So happy well, birthday. Thank you. I'm glad I was born. And I love you, too. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, it's good. You know, we had I'm glad we have this this friendship moment at the top of our show because there yeah. were some good friendship moments between Fury and uh, and Talos in this third episode of Secret Invasion. How's that for a segue? I've done this for a good Woo! chunk of those 40 years. Love it. So, uh, more than 25% of those 40 years have been spent podcasting, believe it or not. Actually, we are approaching the 15th anniversary, my 15th anniversary of podcasting, not for this show, but sure. I started podcasting in late August, early September ish. I mean, late August as far as recording, but publishing early September in 2008. So 15 years of podcasting, a good chunk of those 40 years uh, being spent talking about the things I've loved since I was a kid. So that's what keeps me young at heart is being able to go on and talk about super scrolls and super spies and all of this cool stuff that mm -hmm, we talk about mm -hmm. on MCU Fan Show. And three episodes in, Paul, I know we were uh, talking a, a little bit before the show off air and we'll, we'll spare everybody some of the ranting. But uh, yeah, I think... Uh, it is a little confusing to have a Marvel show be not well, not confusing stuff happens, but to have a Marvel show that is so good, I think anyway, and it seems like you agree and, and a lot of people agree the people who are watching this show, it seems like there's a lot of positive consensus. Not everybody loves the show, but most people who are watching this show seem to be enjoying it quite a bit. But yeah, we're not seeing the the volume of conversation uh, around Secret Invasion that we've seen from previous Marvel Studios shows, but
But I do feel like eventually people are going to catch up to this. Maybe they'll feel more inclined to check it out and feel a greater sense of urgency uh, to check it out in advance of Nick Fury's next feature film appearance in the Marvels later on this year. But you know what? Regardless, whatever audience went, whatever audience finds this and whenever they find it, I think they're going to be, most of them anyway, pretty happy with it. Because here we are now at the halfway mark in this series, three episodes out of the six, and I'm feeling really good about it. I talked last week how we've had this thing before where a Marvel Studios Disney Plus show comes out, and we really love the first two episodes. Sometimes that extends into episode three, but sometimes around episode three or four, so we still have to worry about next week a little bit, sometimes after the first couple really strong episodes, we see a dip for a show. Mm -hmm. And I did not see that this week. I know this was a shorter episode than the previous two, but runtime is about the only thing that made this a lesser episode than the previous two. I thought this was another really, really strong episode. And this show continues to find ways to get these characters and and just get these actors into these small spaces where they're just talking one-on-one and they have these very intense scenes and I am just absolutely loving it. And that's what makes the spy games that much more impactful is yes, you have the stakes and we all get the idea of World War III being a bad thing and the extinction of the human race being a bad thing (laughs) and we want to prevent it. But the truth is, those are the types of things that are part of most, not necessarily the spy games, and not specifically World War III, but a lot of human beings being in mortal danger is a common problem in these stories. So we could be somewhat numb to that, unless there's some other compelling emotional stakes that are part of the story, and that's what I think Secret Invasion totally has in these first few episodes. And we'll get into it, uh, of course, going scene by scene as we often do. But just right off the bat, Paul, I would say that there was no drop off this week that Secret Invasion, in my mind, is totally without question three for three. Yeah, I, I, I've i been very impressed with how like how well written the show is and how it is just it's so totally different than we, what we've gotten in a lot of the latest uh Marvel uh, things, you know, projects, whatever. And I think that, you know, the one thing I'm going to say is it's going to be very fascinating how the finale is going to go, because from I think from a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pizzazz level, because we we're getting we've heard it does look like it's it's shot on location. There's not a lot of they're, they're scripting and saving you know, with how the scrolls and everything, I mean, even, cause even for me, as I'm watching it, when I, and, I, and for the record, I, I love this show. I think it's been great. Um, it's not something I'm going to want to rewatch a, a ton maybe, but I've enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to the series, like every episode, whereas, you know, and always more so than I'd say the other Marvel studio series, um, for the most part, it's one, it's one that I'm actually like, Oh man, I can't wait to watch this. Um, what I'm going to say is I, if we did, if we end up going all the way through and get kind of like a eh, kind of like not an eh, but like not, not as much of a, a big finale, it will be a little disappointing because I want to see that because we're getting the slow build. And that's what I'm curious how that might affect the series going forward to Sean after it's already aired. Um, because I think that if they had that big finale, then people will be like, Oh, that slow burn pays off. Right? Like, 
I think that's what for me as I, again, I can only speak for myself as a fan. I, I would be a little disappointed if it's still a little bit lackluster if they're because it feels like they're saving for the end. But maybe I'm wrong. I maybe this will be all it's all in the same vein and and that it'd be fine. But I will think I'd be a little disappointing if it wasn't a little bit of a bigger, you know, uh, at least from a budget standpoint and make it look really nice kind of a thing um, with scrolls and whatnot. So which I think they will. But it just as I'm watching the series, you can definitely tell for the most part they they're they're really holding their budget in in the best way possible, which I think is good. But I would like to see a little more science fictiony things happen in the show. But it's kind of like we talked about Agents of Shield briefly for a second, right? And, and I just want to say Agents of Shield because I quit watching the show later on. And it's just on a, a different budget than the other series. Were, sure. You know, and I, and I want, and then that's not, I'm not trying to talk mess. I'm just saying like that definitely hurt my viewing of the series. And Secret Invasion is on that kind of level. It's not, it's not like it's better or worse. It's just, it's like on the similar, you know, thing. And so maybe a little bit better. It's got Samuel Jackson. So, I mean, come on. Right. And Ben Mendelsohn. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had like, Samuel L. Jackson briefly and yeah, yeah, briefly yeah. in moments. And Amelia Clark. Yeah. But but you get what I'm saying? Like there I, I just though I would like to see Secret Invasion take the next step from a budget standpoint and at, at least with a finale to give it to give it that meaning because that slow burn. I think people are it's maybe turning people off a little bit. And it seems like if they know that there's, it's going to lead somewhere, like, and they hear that from people, that's when they're going to check it out. Maybe I'm crazy, but that's the kind of the impression that I'm getting. I don't know. I mean, I feel like these are, this is part of a spy type of show is the mystery just kind of continues to unravel bit by bit. And then you find out questions you didn't even know you were supposed to be asking yet. And so of course, like, Last week, for example, we were talking about Priscilla and at the end of the episode, Nick Fury has a wife, has had a wife and he's had this secret life. But we weren't necessarily asking the questions that come up almost right away in this episode of like, well, what does it mean now that he's been gone? Right. Because Maria Hill was talking about um, when he was taught when Fury was talking in their conversation that they had when they were having their chess match and Fury was talking about, you know, feeling like he owed it to Talos. And, you know, you sure she said something to the effect of you sure he's the that's the only one. And we were thinking uh, Gravik at that time. And that's probably part of it. But Hill could have also been referring to Priscilla and, and Fury's wife because, hey, he's been gone the whole time, not just for. Talos, not just for Gravik and, and whatever their relationship was, and, and we'll, I'm sure, find out more in subsequent episodes, but if he had a wife, and it seems like he did this whole time, well, then not only was he can't, could not have helped being dusted for five years, but then he came back and he still left and, and went to the space station. So having all of those questions, where what does that mean in terms of where do her allegiances lie? And that becomes a question in this episode. I find all of that stuff interesting. I find all of that stuff really, really compelling. And I know it's not a, as big and spectacular as certain things that we like about the MCU. But at the same time, I, we've talked about this before. It's the versatility of these characters, of these of the types of stories that you can tell. And so if you want to tell uh, a smaller, but still have these big global stakes, but really focus more on the smaller emotional stakes against the backdrop of all of these spy games 
I'm up for that. And would I want every MCU show to be this? Absolutely not. I wouldn't want every MCU show to be any one particular thing. But this is doing a lot of the things that you and I talked about on previous podcasts, and I know other fans have expressed as well. And that doesn't that's not me saying that they're doing things we ask for, and therefore everybody should like the show. You're entitled to your opinion of, of the show, whatever it may be. But it is doing a lot of the things that I have wanted to see the MCU do, which is, on occasion, scale things down and ramp up the emotional intensity and give some actors some really good, compelling emotional dialogue and just let them play it out and just let them go to work with each other and just have a little bit of a back to basics, character development, emotional stakes, storytelling that I think was one of the not-so-secret weapons of the MCU for such a long time that maybe in some MCU projects, I wouldn't say has fallen off completely, but hasn't been given the same level of emphasis or maybe just ultimately not executed as well in some other recent MCU things. And I say that as somebody who's a big, big fan of most of the MCU's output, not just up uh, to and during through the Infinity Saga, but post-Infinity Saga, post-Endgame, I've been a big fan of most of what they've done, but where there have been some shortcomings in some places, I feel like this series so far is not falling into any of those traps, and that's why I'm, I've am i been very, very happy with it. But let's go ahead and let's talk about the actual episode. So what we see early on is preparing for the next phase in Gravik's war with, uh, with humans. So we see Pagan, Beto, and another Skrull in shelled form, getting ready for an attack. They get their new assignments for the new people they're going to be duplicating. Meanwhile, Gravik hosts the council to introduce uh, the plan for the episode, that there's a submarine that's going to launch an attack on a UN plane, and that is supposed to incite World War III. Also, because Gravik feels that this new part of the plan is what's going to draw the strongest, or should we say mightiest, response from Earth, they need to be ready. So Gravik talks about, here's what we're working on. We're going to become, and he says it, Super Skrulls, uh, which we already saw being teased in the previous episode. But just having somebody, Paul, we, we I don't know why. I mean, I've been talking about this stuff publicly on in podcast form for 15 years. We've been following these movies and these shows for such a long time. But sometimes when there are certain words that even for licensing reasons, may or may not have been banned at various points for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. When there are just certain concepts like Super Scrolls that we talk about, um, but then to hear the word, hear those words actually spoken aloud, because let's face it, sometimes these words get tap danced around and we don't actually see them. <laughs> we don't actually hear them said or spoken. So to hear Gravik actually say Super Scrolls was pretty cool. And again, it, it sets the stage for this episode. You know, it was one of those things I didn't think we were going to get said from them themselves. And I got to tell and he you, he says it totally it was, seriously. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it was said seriously, but actually like, yeah, pretty cool. Like, Here's the like, normal I, way it, that would have happened is Christopher McDonald's a Stern's character would have said, what are we supposed to be? Some kind of super scrolls. Like that's the yeah. way it normally <laughs> would have been said. He would have shooter no. McGavin the words super scrolls right out there. And then that would have been it. Um, but no, like Gravik says it uh, totally serious. He's completely earnest when he says it. And he actually gives it some gravitas. Yeah, word. Yeah. And that's and that's why I have to say where the show has kind of elevated, I think, some of this writing and some and some of like the, the drama is that when you take that stuff seriously, 
some of that goofy stuff, like Super Scrolls, like the idea and like the, like the words, the words itself themselves, when you put it in that context and you have an actor deliver the line beautifully, it gives it a whole different meaning. And that's why acting and writing, sometimes it's people think that they, they'll think a script will be, at least for me, like I'll, if I read something on a page, it's like so hard for me to imagine what it, if it's for, you know, for an actual like film script you know, they see this emotion because when I read it on a page, it doesn't feel emotion without pictures or without someone performing it. Right. So on a page it'd be like, man, it'd be hard for me to take that seriously if I was to read it myself, right. For, without knowing the actor's performance or anything. And then you put in the context of the scene and the actor, it's, it's really incredible. Like, honestly, and, and seriously, I remember like, wasn't prepared when he said it, when he said it, I went, that was pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, no, I, I totally loved it. And I don't know why stuff like that, it just means something because it is a concept that people just say, oh, that's silly. And we, we're not actually we're not actually going to have people say it or if we are going to have them say it, it's got to be a joke. No, it, it actually doesn't have to be. It can be. And you can have some fun with that at times. But you can also still take it seriously as, as Gravik obviously does, because this is his plan and he's, he's very much into it. Um, and he's already worked on himself, as we see later on in the episode. But then we flash back to New York City, 1998, and this is where Fury and Vara are reintroduced to each other, and uh, Fury gets to see Vara in this form for the very first time. She gives him intel on Drakov. I like that as a little MCU Easter egg because, you know, of course, Drakov, investigating Drakov, attacking Drakov, all of those things is eventually going to lead Nick Fury to Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow. So that was a cool uh, little add to uh, to that piece. But then also Fury saying when it becomes clear that Vara is interested in Fury, he says they can't be together because commanders and operatives and all of that stuff. But she says, hey, uh, her unit doesn't technically exist. They don't officially exist. So she doesn't actually work for him. And then that is the permission that they both get to pursue this relationship. So I like the fun Black Widow Easter egg. I like that they showed some care in accounting for the power dynamics between the two characters and establishing that this was very much a relationship, a romance that Vara was interested in pursuing, uh, just as Nick Fury clearly was as well. I like the chemistry between the two of them, the flirting between the two of them. I really like that they took the steps to show us this scene and even show us that it wasn't necessarily a romance that started right away as they were working together in 1997. There's a little bit of distance there. It's a year later in 1998. And it's still good to show us this scene rather than give these characters in the present day a few lines of dialogue to explain how they got together. Give us an actual scene that shows how that connection, how that romantic connection between these two started. I love this scene. <clears throat> I thought it was really well written also well performed. Um, I again, it's always so hilarious. That I, I'm like, man, it's 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 Mr. Glass's mom. Um, but um, no, there you can tell they have a great chemistry, um, and they they must have known each other for a while because they just naturally the, between the two actors just are there's so much chemistry between the two of them, and I, I I love seeing that scene. It was really really cool to see them kind of work together, and also just kind of how. She just, you know, there, there was, I got a sense of, 
she understands Nick Fury, but also like she doesn't, she's not beholden to him either because of not just because they work together, but because she is a scroll and she's like, I don't know, I got that sense. And again, I'm not sure if that was meant to happen. I like that. And I, it almost feels that Fury needs that because it's not, it's not just because it's, he's, she's under him, but it's almost like it's more of the idea that she doesn't, she doesn't need Nick Fury. No. You know what I mean? Like, and that's that to me is what's important in the relationship is that he needs someone that's totally independent of him. And we'll get that later on, too. But the fact that understands that side of him because he has to operate by himself, but she kind of operates on her own thing, too. Does that make sense? Like, I there is that kind of they both have to kind of go their separate ways potentially. And that almost brings them more together because they understand their dynamic, like each other's dynamics better than other people might. Yeah. And I like that. And yeah, already fully understanding kind of the terms of the relationship and exactly. the limits of the yeah, relationship. Yeah. Like, as she says, when we go, we go from how it started to how it's going. And she even mentions that, that she knew that if you're with, if she's going to be with Nick Fury, that means he's going to be away for long periods of time but then as she says it's staying away that's what leaves a mark and that's what nick fury did like the scene starts out as this very pleasant thing they're having breakfast she makes fun of the way he made eggs and he she serves him coffee asks him what he plans to do in retirement and his plan is revenge but then it very and then it turns right and that's also part of being in a relationship with nick fury means that it's always kind of about Nick Fury and, and his business and and it's it all it is always about whatever mission is happening. And and Nick Fury has been away for a long time. So when he asks, uh, he asks Priscilla, aka Vara, wants to know if she's been in touch with Gravik and he wants to know who she's become in Fury's absence. And uh, Charlene Woodward gives a, a great performance here as she goes through what happened and, and who she became. She was a widow when Nick Fury vanished, and that was bad enough. And just as she was working her way through and starting to emerge on the other side of that grieving process for five years, Nick Fury came back, except then he vanished again, this time, as she puts it, voluntarily. And then she says, she goes on to say, I became me. And then she gets a call uh, for information she doesn't have available right at that moment uh, to end that conversation, and then tells Fury that the call wasn't about anything important. Probably has something to do with the call that she gets uh, or the message she gets later on at the very end of the episode. But this is also part of a, a Nick Fury relationship is Fury can't help but be Nick Fury, which part of Nick Fury's whole deal is to be suspicious. But it's also realistic. He was gone for five years and then he was gone for additional years for however long he's been up on Saber out in space. So if he hasn't actually been there having a relationship with Priscilla, connecting with her, and he knows obviously she is a Skrull, and there is, it's a very divisive issue right now on Earth for how they want to go about this situation between Talos and Gravik. There's not quite a civil war, a civil cold war amongst the Skrulls, and Nick Fury wants to know where exactly she stands. But I really like what Priscilla gets in, in this scene where she doesn't really give into the suspicion of Nick Fury and, and I owe you an answer and everything. What I owe you is to speak the truth of how I have felt and, and what my experience has been while you've been away. Because if you want to know 
who I am, who I've become, well, you should know what this was actually like for me and how I interpreted your choices, how I couldn't help but interpret your choices. So this was another great emotional scene. And, and again, I, I know you could say, well, at some point, having these intense emotional conversations, that becomes a trope uh, in its own right of just having these characters say these really intense things to each other and then move on to the next scene. But when it really does come across as genuine, when it makes sense for where these characters would just reasonably be based on how they get a chance to outline their experience, that's what makes it really genuine and, and fulfilling to watch as uh, as an audience member. So I, I really love this scene and the juxtaposition of it, right? It starts out with, here's the, the fun and flirty how they got together, followed by the here's how things are going now. And they're not really going as great as it might have seemed at the end of last week's episode, because how could it be? You know, there was the initial, I missed you greeting, and but then it comes to, there are conversations we need to have, so let's go ahead and start. Yeah, this was really interesting because <clears throat> I don't, I don't know how I feel about the fact that like he's on Saber and we, do, and, and again, like I, we don't know the why, and that's a good big mystery, right? Like that's not the, yeah, that's got to come somewhere in this show, right? Like, yeah, it's, right. It's too big of a thing. Cause he even says, you know, uh, when he talked to Hill, you know, his crisis of faith and then it followed him up there. It's like, okay, we need to. We need to see and know what that crisis of faith was. And and because we're flashing back every week, I, I assume we're going to get there. I mean, obviously, it'll be awful <laughs> if we don't get there in this show, but I don't think they would keep calling back to it if they weren't going to pay it off. Yeah, so I feel like the fact that he hasn't told her, it makes me think it has to do with the scrolls, mm -hmm. you know? So it so there's something there's something that he's holding back. And he's not telling her because, you know, as, as we're both married, married people here, Sean, it's like, I can't imagine being like, I was gone for five years. I just happen to die and come back to life. Oh my God. See you later. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm like, yeah. okay, that doesn't make sense. I mean, usually it would go the other way around. It's the person who was there for five years and moved on being like, really glad you're back, but yeah. I've uh, made choices. Yeah. yeah, I've made choices the last five years and built my life in such a way that there's just no longer space for you. So it really sucks that that happened to you. But yes. uh, can you go? I, I think yeah. that that seems like the more, I don't know, likely way that something like that would go down if there were going yeah. to be a split. But yeah, the person who comes back from the dead being like, because it's not like Fury moved on to another life. He was space dust. He was nothing yeah, for five years, yeah. and then he comes back. So he he came back to the moment that he left. And so I think for him, yeah, the answer wouldn't be that. But I, I think for Fury, it is. I, I think there is going to be some plotting to it. But I also think it's going to be very emotional because that's why they showed the flashback in the first episode of him right, going right. through it. Like I think that really shook Nick Fury to his core in terms of that crisis of faith is that he lost. There was something he did not see coming. And, and even so, I mean, think about this from Nick Fury's perspective. He wasn't even in the loop that something was going on. I mean, Nick Fury mm. is the guy who knows everything. He wasn't contacted in Avengers Infinity War. He is trying to he and Maria Hill are trying to figure it out kind of on the fly, but nobody's been calling him. Think I mean, think about how the, the Avengers meet up at the Avengers compound. They travel to Wakanda and nobody's looping in 
Nick Fury. So I think there's a lot of that, that that Fury felt so disconnected, so out of control, and ultimately so defeated by what happened, amongst other things that I think will probably uh, be told about or be shown uh, throughout the series. But it's not too hard for me to imagine how that really hurt Nick Fury. Um, but still a little more on besides me just imagining it and us filling in the blanks for ourselves, the show should fill in a lot of those blanks because what we didn't know is Fury had somebody uh, he was deeply connected to whom he just left behind to go off to space. So for that crisis of faith to drive him away from not only his friends, his Avengers and, and everybody else, but that there was a wife that it drove him away from. Yeah, we need to know uh, more of exactly what happened and, and why and how he was feeling. Yeah, and so I, I think that that's where I, I'm just I'm very much I'm hoping, and I think they will. I, I have a lot of faith in the show. It it it, it hasn't steered me wrong yet, so I, I definitely think we're going to get that. But it I really want to know what exactly drove Fury away from his wife after being gone for five years. He obviously loves her. There's again, they, like, like you said, like they had the, the whole flashback as a whole setup to this point. Now, um, well, all the flashbacks, really the flashback with, with her and Gravik with Sam, with Sam, with Sam Jackson, uh, with Nick Fury, the episode before into this episode. And, and it, you know, all that's all, it's all connected to build up, build this up and the whole build up of fury crisis of faith and things aren't, you know, his world is falling apart. It's changing. What does that mean? All that is tied into Saber and what he was doing on those for five years or from after the, however long he was on after being gone for five years. So I'm just, I just want to know what it is. I'm like, ah, like, like I just, who there's, I mean, I'll be honest, man. Nothing would drive me away from like my, my family, like after being gone for five years like that, this ain't going to happen. So something, unless something, you know, you could, you had to be there for us, you know, for whatever sure. reason, maybe he, you know, he was emotionally compromised or, you know, and he couldn't, whatever. I just, I think there has to be something more from, from that a story aspect, a narrative standpoint to drive him back up there. Yeah, and I think we will. I do think that will be uncovered as we go on in the series. The next thing that we, the next scene that we get is Gravik questioning Gaia because Brogan did not know the location of the safe house. Remember, that's the one that Gaia gave up to make it look like that's the information Brogan surrendered when he was being interrogated by Fallsworth in the previous episode. Gaia just tries to explain it away that he made an educated guess. Um, and, and she tries to say what she would have done. She would have lied because she's a good liar, which she clearly is not. Um, and Gravik doesn't really believe her in the scene. Like the way he stares back at her, and it's a good performance by Kingsley Benadir and Amelia Clark in the scene. But he just accepts it for now because he's got other ways of finding out who the traitor is, who the mole is within his organization. And uh, we cut to the next morning where uh, Gaia is driving him for the parlay that he has with Talos. And meanwhile, Gaia overhears some information about the Neptune submarine attacking the UN plane, types some information into a burner phone that she will eventually make sure finds its way to Talos. But this initial interrogation, I liked. I think it also says something. Uh, it says something about Gaia in terms of how much she's risking right now. And just knowing how much she really is just totally exposed and, and leveraged in, in all of this, that she's trying to help, trying to do the right thing without necessarily giving herself away. But at some point, 
it just becomes impossible, as we see, of course, by the end of this episode. But I also like what this shows about Gravik as a character, that he has patience, because he really could just come right after Gaia in this scene and say, I don't believe you, I know it was you, and he could have her executed the same way that he had Brogan executed or the same way he will be uh, executing her at the end of this episode, which I don't think she's actually gone, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. So he could just be rash and just be very immediate and just handle it right away. The fact that he doesn't, the fact that he goes through these different layers and he's very patient about it, I think it tells us a lot about just how tactical Gravik is. And so I, I appreciated that about the scene. So even though it's not the intense, it doesn't have all the intense raw emotion of other scenes in this episode, I still like it because of the way that it's acted and, and what it says about the characters, but particularly Gravik in, in the way that he acts like he's accepting this from Gaia, but he totally doesn't. And, and Kingsley Benadir does a good job of portraying that. Man, Gravik is like turning into like a legit villain, man. Yeah. Like, like seriously, I had no, I, I honestly went into the show not caring what the villain was going to be. I figured it was okay. Scroll person. Sweet. Don't really care. Just want to see Sam Jackson be like, kill his scrolls, you know, and just shoot a bunch of people and be like, sweet. Degree rules. You know, I'd be happy with that. I'm easy to please, obviously. Um, but I, I gotta tell you, graphics really, he's really He's grabbing me, man. Like I'm like, I, he's a legit like character and you know, and that's the one th cool thing about the MCU is that, you know, for me as a, as a huge Marvel zombie, these characters and these, and the scrolls, it's just, you know, there's not, a lot, there's a few characters here or there. Right. But scrolls, not my favorite thing, but they've really given me something to really chew on with this gravic character. And I'm really liking where they're going with it. And besides the whole super scroll aspect, yeah, I'm I'm into this, and I love this character. And I'm you know even though he hasn't really been in makeup very, have we even seen him out of sight of makeup? I don't even know. Like, um, but or, or you know in makeup, I should say, as an actual scroll. Either way, man, like I'm digging this character. I'm super into what they've done and developed him. And I love I love these scenes with um with Gaia and Emilia Clark, and again gr two great actors going off of each other. And like you said, like it's that uneasiness of like, I think they both know that yep. graphic doesn't believe her. And, but, but you get, but they both know that like, he can't really act on that. Maybe at that moment, like for, I mean, there's a reason he could, it's almost, but, yeah, he could, yeah. but it's more valuable perhaps not to. And, and also exactly. I do mm -hmm. think there is from graphics perspective. And this is what I also think it says about him, not just how tactical and, and how patient he can be. I don't think he believes her. But at the same time, I think he wants to be absolutely certain. And that says something about him in terms of having some sort of code that this person came to me saying that she has accepted the mission, that she's on my team. She has done some of the work that has been asked of her. So even though I'm suspicious of her, even though I don't really believe her, even though I know she has motivations outside of my organization, even though I know that she is directly connected to, she is the daughter of one of my enemies in Talos, if I'm going to do this, I want to be absolutely certain that it's her. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take the steps to do that. And meanwhile, for her, she knows, right? She knows that Gravik suspects her, but 
she still has to keep going too. She still has to do her part to try and stop him because she knows that a lot of lives are going to be lost if Gravik is not stopped. So I, I like that about the the unspoken understanding between the two characters is just as good, if not better, than than what they're actually saying to each other. Um, so it was a great scene, and then another great scene with Gravik as he has his parley uh, conversation with Talos. And I like when they're staring at the painting and Gravik goes into his monologue about the difference between statesmen and soldiers. And if it was about being in nice clothes and having his portrait painted versus uh, being out there and, and having and, and bleeding for his cause, he says, I choose blood all day long. And then Talos says, yours and everyone else's, huh? Brave, uh, as Gravik uh, agrees to that. Just to have a, a quick little piece like that to get you into Gravik's mindset uh, a little bit in terms of how he views himself. Because right now, he is the general, he is the leader of this scroll movement, but at the same time, he still sees himself as the soldier who stands shoulder to shoulder with his brothers and sisters and everybody else fighting for a cause, bleeding for a cause. There's an honor that I think Gravik obviously sees in what he's doing, whether or not you would agree with or condone what he's doing. This is how he sees it from his perspective. And they're doing a great job of, of giving validity that you can understand, not in terms of validity that you agree with it, but you understand how he got there. And, and I think that's really essential for an antagonist. And that's what's made Gravik so compelling. And this is why, by the way, like I, I don't, I talked about this with the first episode of how I don't feel like having scrolls who are attacking humans and having this plot to incite World War Three to uh, to propel the extinction of the human race. This is why I don't think this ultimately contradicts what happened or undermines, undercuts what happened in Captain Marvel, because there are still scrolls who are against what Gravik is doing, who are uh, who are of the sort that we saw and of the mindset that we saw back in Captain Marvel. But also, in terms of how Gravik got there, it's not like he just decided, I'm going to be an evil, shape-shifting, green alien invader, and that's all I need to be. There is, emotionally, there's a way, there's a path that brought him to where he is now, and they're doing a really good job of letting us see a little bit more of that path and how he got there each week, and just philosophically where he's at uh, with his mindset. So I really liked that opening to the scene Meanwhile, Talos is thinking about, and, and even just the different perspectives, right? Gravik sees the the honor, the glory in what he's doing. Talos sees it as ultimately self-serving because you can make that decision and say what you would choose all day long, but that doesn't necessarily mean from Talos' perspective that you're making the right choice for others. And how do you know the difference? Um, I think is one of the interesting ethical questions that, uh, I mean, Humankind has been examining for thousands of years, but certainly I think within the context of this show, it's a great debate for these two characters. And as they have a seat and continue their conversation, Gravik uses the mention of Gaia um, to and the, the threat of sending her back to Talos in a body bag to provoke a physical attack from Talos, which gives us the shot we see in the trailer where that entire room is full of scrolls and they all start to look like Gravik's uh, human shell. And Gravik has... Uh, what we get in this scene is really Gravik just having, he's totally justified his plan. He thinks he's going to win. He thinks he's going to win easily. And Talos is the one who says, you don't understand the first thing about humans. They're at their most formidable when they're threatened by a common foe. 
which is a great line from Talos, but also very true to the MCU. What have we seen over and over and over again when there's a common foe that is a threat to humans or is a threat to the universe? In the case of Thanos, that's when we have seen Earth's mightiest heroes come together. That's when we have seen humans at their most formidable, formidable taking on a common foe. And so in certainly within the context of the MCU, it's a very true statement from Talos, which is also showing uh, from Talos's perspective, as he said, with the whole yours and everyone else's in terms of the, the choosing blood all day long, that Talos isn't just trying to, in his mind, protect humans from scrolls. He's trying to protect the scrolls from humans. He's trying to protect the scrolls from Gravik, that ultimately any war is going to lead to mass casualties on all sides and a lot of innocent lives being lost. And that's where Talos uh, really differs. And he sees things from a perspective that obviously Gravik just can't uh, can't or won't tap into. And then uh, Talos threatens to blow Gravik's cover and remove whatever element of surprise he has against the humans right now. And then Gravik goes back to mentioning Gaia, uh, prompting uh, Talos to stab Gravik's hand, which allows us to see that Gravik already is a super scroll. We see the extremists uh, being allowed from Iron Man 3, allowing him to uh, heal up from that wound. Meanwhile, outside, as Talos leaves, Gaia is able to get that burner phone to him to give him the details about the Neptune attack. But yeah, this whole Parley scene, uh, Paul, I, I thought was absolutely fantastic because again, it's not just about here's a cool scroll change scene, here's a cool scene of Talos being surrounded. Philosophically, these characters really get to express their where they're coming from. Um, and you get to see, as I said, the, the validity of the arguments on each side, independent of, you know, and obviously not including condoning any specific behavior. Yeah, I, you know, and I don't watch a lot of trailers, so I didn't even remember that shot where they all turn into uh, graphic or, you know, if I did, it's, I don't watch them very much. And so, Again, that's why I like watching. <clears throat> that's why I do what I do because I was totally surprised by that part. I wasn't. I totally forgotten. Wasn't expecting that to happen, and I loved it. I love this. I love this stuff. Right. I mean, Gravik and um, Talos. It's. It was a great. It was a great scene to show the differences of a scroll trying to work with, with the humans and Earth, to someone who thinks that they, they deserve. Uh, to be there it's it's very much professor x and magneto <laughs> you very know? much very much but but again that's that's fine i i like that, that i like that economy you know but the the thing is what i love about this is seeing the scrolls kind of you know how graphic is very smart you know he's not he's not dumb he you know but he also underestimated you know talos a little bit right and I thought that was interesting, like because you know he provoked him twice. Yeah, and and that was a and cool. Talos no, went for him the second time, knowing full well what he was up against. Like the first exactly. attack, exactly. Talos didn't know he was surrounded, or at least didn't seem to know. Second one, he obviously knew full well, and he went for it anyway, and just and then just flat out threatened Gravik, like don't mention my daughter again, and then that's it. Yeah, and I I gotta tell you, I thought that was really again a really well written and well performed scene. And I and again, you're you're showing, you're sh you're doing so many different things with that whole setup of that scene. With you know, everyone's like, "Hey, we got you surrounded," and he's like, "I don't care, mother effers," you know. <laughs> so I just love that. I thought yeah. it was great. Like, um, enough's enough. So, I'm not going to be intimidated by you. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was awesome. And so, 
I, you know, the one thing I'm going to say here, and I'm just, uh, so yeah, nothing much to add other than that, but I'm just going to throw this out there. Is Talos going to become Super Scroll? He might. I mean, he may feel like he has to in order oh, to, oh, uh, oh. he may feel like, he, yeah, I mean, or, I mean, this also is a story where, and I know that the trailers kind of drove some speculation that maybe Talos won't ultimately survive this series, um, which is also sure. possible, but um, he could potentially, I, I think it would be, there'd be a, a good amount of work to get them there though. Cause uh, as we can see from Talos's perspective, he's really not in the business of escalating matters. I mean, if he feels, obviously you can put him in a position where he feels like there's no other choice and this is the only way to combat Gravik is to fight fire with fire, but that doesn't really appear to be Talos's mentality, you know? Fighting fire with fire means the whole world burns. So, like that—that's really more of the perspective that Talos is approaching this from. So, I—I I wouldn't say I'd be surprised if he became a super scroll. Just say, yeah, there's there's some work to get him there because he really seems to be more of um, let's de-escalate rather than escalate. But you can certainly put him in a position where he feels like there is there's no other choice. But for right now, the choice is after this scene to go grab some breakfast. So while Talos is eating breakfast, Fury comes back. And Talos points out rather fairly that Fury's got a lot of nerve to come back asking for help, given what Fury just said to Talos on the train in the last episode. But they're friends, so obviously Talos is going to listen. Fury says he's got a lead on a rebel scroll that's high up in the U.S. government and is in London right now. And that's when everybody has the flashing sign go off in their head. Rody, Rody, Rody. Um, as I talked about with some of the, the thoughts on some of the things that led me to believe, and I'm sure have led many to believe that Rhodey might be a Skrull, and there's a bigger clue that happens, uh, not even just this line, but later on in the episode. Um, we'll save that, I think, for when we uh, when we get to it um, later on, when we have the, the additional clue that drops, but seems like Fury suspects Rhodey. Um, but Talos isn't just going to accept that information as an assignment, and he tells Fury that Fury's going to have to use his words, and those words are, help me, Talos, because I'm useless without you, and Fury's ready to walk out, and then he turns to Talos and says, help me, Talos, because I'm useless without you. The fact that Fury actually says the words, does Fury really believe he's useless without Talos? No, but that is the apology. Fury owes Talos an apology for what happened on the train, for the conversation that they had, and Talos obviously accepts the apology. And when we talk about um, little moments of friendship between these two characters, Talos doesn't say, I accept your apology or whatever. He throws his money uh, on the bar to pay for his breakfast. But then he just lightly grabs Fury's arm like, OK, I got you. Like, I, I accept the apology. Let's go on this latest mission that the two of us are on together as we've been having these adventures for the past 30 years. But as I said before, similar to the scene with uh, Gravik and Gaia, although way, way, way more positive uh, in this instance, it's about what's not being said between the two characters because those aren't really the words that Nick Fury needs to say, but it's probably harder for Fury to say that than to call himself useless without Talos than it is for Fury to just throw out a really casual, potentially meaningless, I'm sorry. So how can Talos tell if Fury really means it and really apologizes? By saying something that Fury would really, really, really hate to say. That's how Talos knows that there is an apology between the two of them. 
And then again, not accepting it verbally, just with the grab of the arm, like, okay, we're friends again, let's go. Or we've always still been friends and now we're, we're back on good terms, let's roll. Yeah, I, I like I like the stuff. The and, and I don't have much to add to it, to be honest. But I I will just add that the more scenes we get with them talking together, it's just it's it's just really it's always really nice, right? And it's just your character building. You're not necessarily narrative building, you know, completely, but it's just you're emphasizing their relationship, and you're having two great actors go off of each other, and it's all and it's 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 like the the strength of the show. Um. And I, I really shows it just shows you to me how important it is to have these scenes to really get attached to the characters and believe in their relationship, even though it may not be driving narrative. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I think that's the kind of the thing about um, these these shows that we that we kind of underestimate. That those are important moments. Like some of Loki's best, I think Loki's strongest episodes are when he's just reflecting. You know, there's a lot more talking and a lot more of like, you know, character building, like in, uh, or in the case of the, like, like the Loki season finale, right? Yeah. Where it's just, it's just, it's all of them are just talking, you know, and that's all it is. And, but, but it's just a bunch of great actors going at it as, you know, with, with words. And that's the thing about, I think, the, uh, the episode or the I, the series that I really liked. And again, I'm, I don't have a lot to add, but I would say that I just love seeing these two great actors go at it together. Yeah. And I think what you just said though, in terms of having the characters talking about their experiences and reflecting, I'm reminded of a, a scene that is comical and dramatic. One of my favorite scenes in the entire MCU, one of the best acted scenes in the entire MCU between Rocket, but then, of course, in terms of live action acting, it's Chris Hemsworth as Thor in Avengers Infinity War. When he goes through and sums up everything that he's lost throughout his adventures in the MCU, and, of course, it's we don't think of it in that context of, like, oh, these characters have been through all this stuff because we experience these stories one at a time. And, of course, we go back and we rewatch and we can, we can sum them up, but a lot of times we don't think to do that. So when the characters have an opportunity to sum up their experiences, which isn't necessarily what Talos did right here, or what he's about to do in the conversation that they're going to have when it continues in the car. But I think if we, if you ever did think about just the total experiences of, of these characters, any one of these characters throughout the MCU, it is a lot to unpack. So it's really nice when they get a chance to unpack that a little bit in scenes like this. So I, I'm I'm totally here for these types of scenes. Again, it's it's a very different. Obviously, it's very different than the Infinity War scene, but just the essence of getting a chance to unpack just these experiences and and what it meant. And that's not what Talos is doing. He's not summing up everything he's been through and everything that he's lost. But Fury knows what Talos has been through and what Talos has lost. So that's why he's not okay with the way Fury was kind of questioning some of his motivations. Um, it, while Fury was gone up in space the whole time and, and Talos had been abandoned as, as many were um, anyway, that that wasn't really the time or place or right for Fury to question that the way that he did. So there was an apology that was owed and it was delivered and accepted. But that doesn't mean that Talos has said the last word to Nick Fury. So they are on their way to figure out and, and stop this plot of the submarine launching a missile into the UN plane Fury makes a call to Fallsworth, which allows us to be treated to 
Another short but sweet and very effective scene and performance by Olivia Coleman. And uh, she has since discovered the bug that Fury planted in her office in the first episode. Really upset with that he planted it on the owl that she loved that she named uh, Hoot, but has now been renamed to Nick Fury and has a dashing eye patch. And that eye patch is dashing. I love it. Um, and so she talks, of they, uh, she gives them some information, but she doesn't actually help them beyond providing a little bit of information on terms of who's in charge of that submarine, as well as a, a picture and an address. So that's enough help, but she doesn't jump in, she doesn't spring into action, even though this is a, Neptune is a British submarine. She says she's busy dealing with her own infiltration, and we see a file with a picture of Derek, played by Tony Coran, whom she was talking to via the bugged Al Hoot slash Nick Fury video from the first episode. So Fallsworth has her own problems to deal with, um, although I would say a British submarine attacking a UN plane is also would also qualify as her problem in M- MI6. But anyway, she's busy, gives Fury and Talos the intel, and so they're off to see Commodore Robert Fairbanks. And on the way, we get into a conversation about dogs that leads Fury to suggest that he's been cleaning up Talos's mess for the past 30 years, and Talos is ready to correct Nick Fury, uh, talking about how Fury was just uh, you know, biding his time in a field office until Talos and the Skrull showed up in 1995. And he said, uh, Talos says to Fury, you didn't, start, you didn't start ascending the ranks until me and 19 of my people signed on as your invisible spy network. We fed you more dirt and intel than you could have uncovered on your own in a lifetime. Talos credits the uh, credits the scrolls for uh, Fury's every shield promotion, every terror attack Fury ever prevented, every enemy that Fury was able to sabotage, every ally that Fury was able to leverage. We did that, is what Talos says. And so Fury's got uh, Talos tells Fury that he's a very capable person. Obviously, he's accomplished a lot, but Fury's life got a hell of a lot more charmed once Talos came into it. And Talos isn't asking for a thank you. He says it was his pleasure. But Talos tells Fury, least you can do is not rewrite history when the guy who helped write it with you the first time is sitting right next to you. And then they've arrived and Fury gets to say that uh, Talos was too busy to notice while he was writing that we did that wave. So I love Fury getting able to break the scene. Um, It's a very tense scene with everything that Talos is saying. But and then we get a a little bit of a comedy break to relieve some of that tension before we go into, of course, the pursuit of Commodore Fairbanks. But I love this scene for and this is the type of scene that Talos absolutely deserves. And this is a really good way of providing a lot of context, a lot of history, because we actually haven't spent if you add it all up, we have not spent that much time with Talos. But to be able to give us a sense of it, and it is a testament to the performance to uh, the, the presence of Ben Mendelsohn as the actor to really drive all of this across. And it's not just this scene, it's everything with Talos in this series so far that brought us to this, but then ultimately had to be delivered uh, really effectively here. And I thought Ben Mendelsohn totally nailed it because Talos deserves this scene. He deserves to get credit for his work. Yes, Nick Fury has been the super spy, but a lot of what made him the super spy were the scrolls that were helping him that were helping him out. And yes, Fury over his time with Shield and, and wherever else he's been since Shield fell in the MCU proper, he's cleaned up a lot of messes, but also Fury's made messes that others have helped him clean up. And obviously Talos and uh, 19 other scrolls were a huge, huge part of that. And so it adds to the relationship between Talos and Fury. 
and having friends just be honest with each other. Because I, I think for Fury, Talos isn't telling him anything he didn't already know. I just think there was a moment where Fury felt prideful and maybe that's because fury has been very vulnerable in this series so far and maybe has felt very vulnerable since the blip that he tried to let out a little bit of that nick fury pride and that nick fury bravado of i'm the one who cleans up the messes but to have his friend be like no um here's what's actually true and you know it's true because we did all of this together so giving the Skrulls a lot of credit in the history of the MCU for helping Nick Fury become the Nick Fury, the legend Nick Fury that a lot of us knew. I like the way that adds to the overall Marvel Cinematic Universe in that story, but specifically for these two characters and with Talos being able to speak his truth to his friend, um, which I think he really needed to do. So as much as the previous scene was great for so much being unspoken, it's okay to use the words too when they're delivered as as perfectly as Ben Mendelsohn does here. Yeah, I, I kind of going up what I said before. Not a lot to add other than the fact that I I'm I'm gonna say I'm not sure I feel that Talos takes credit for everything that he did for Fury and that he essentially is the reason that he ascended. I I, I don't know if I like that. I'll be honest. I'm not. I'm not sure yet. Um, I because Nick Fury I know is capable regardless. Now I'm not saying he didn't. They didn't. You know, weren't great assets that he used to his advantage and and definitely helped propel him. But it definitely felt like the rise of Nick Fury all predicated on the scrolls. I don't know if I like that as a as a character choice and a narrative choice for the MCU overall. Just for this version of Nick Fury, just me personally, his characterization, Nick Fury is just, you know, he's too good to need scrolls to be good. So, I, again, don't hate it. Don't love it. I'm going to wait and see how this all works out at the end. But, yeah, it don't really love yeah, that aspect. It depends on how you interpret it. I don't actually sure. interpret what Talos is saying as the absolute truth. I interpret it as being mostly true or a lot of it being true from talos's perspective but i don't think it actually robs nick fury of of credit for what he's done in terms of rising through the ranks of shield because look he was already i mean look he wasn't necessarily in charge he had been bouncing around as he describes to carol danvers in captain marvel so we already know that he wasn't necessarily super high ranking at that point in time and I don't think it was just the Skrulls helping Nick Fury out. Well, look, I mean, Nick Fury is the one who organized and, and helped lead the Skrulls, right? So that's part of it. I mean, it was his idea. I mean, I, I guess he's the visionary if he's not necessarily the one who did all of the dirty work that had where he had a lot of the Skrulls doing that with him, or I should say helping him, not necessarily doing all of it for him. I think really the, the point that comes across to me in that scene is it's really more of answering Fury's suggestion of I've been cleaning up your mess. It's like, no, 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 no. Like this has been a mutually beneficial relationship and you have been helped quite a bit by us. It, it doesn't rob Fury of credit for the things that Fury has done because we've already seen that. There are some things that, as far as we know, scrolls were not a part of. Like we don't know of any scrolls who were, maybe we'll get more info later. I don't know. But as of right now, we don't have scrolls who were there putting the Avengers together. Like the Avenger initiative, there wasn't a scroll sitting there 
in the office coming up with that idea for Nick Fury. And I think that's the other thing is Nick Fury is kind of the visionary of these things. When he sees the scrolls, here's what they can do to help. And from Fury's perspective, help save, help save lives, help protect people. Here's how the scrolls can help while we continue to search and, and help them find a new home. Whether or not he ultimately lived up to that promise obviously is an issue to be debated by the characters within the show. But I also think that Fury comes up with the he sees a superhero like Captain Marvel and realizes they're going to need a team of superheroes. And if they just found one, then there's a possibility that there are going to be more that are out there. And obviously, we know the history of Cap as a super soldier and all of those things. That Fury is still the one who is forward thinking and, and looking ahead and trying to find answers to potential threats. And he did that successfully a number of times, as we saw throughout his time in the MCU, without Talos around, as far as we knew, without any other scrolls around, at least as far as we know at this point in time. So Nick Fury is still Nick Fury. Nick Fury is still the super spy, but he's the extra super spy. And the legend of Nick Fury wasn't entirely constructed by the scrolls, but they certainly helped make it bigger than it otherwise would have been. And so I, I think... Fury not having done it all himself, I think is perfectly fine. That doesn't take away from him, but at the same time, adds some credibility and, and adds some accomplishment to Talos and the other scrolls that have been that have been part of this. Um, and now, obviously, we're seeing their role expand within the MCU. So that's why I'm good with it on uh, on that level. But anyway, now they are there to have a chat with Commodore Fairbanks to stop this submarine UN plane plot. There are scrolls everywhere. By everywhere, I just mean the security detail are all scrolls. Talos goes into the house searching. Fury catches up. And then here's Talos' call to him, or Talos in air quotes, sorry, Nick. And then Fury comes in and sees, uh, already has a hostage of Fairbanks' son, Zachary, and uh, says, nobody calls me Nick, Bob, this being Commodore Bob Fairbanks, who has taken Talos hostage. So it's a hostage standoff. Fury ultimately wins. And then we are also cutting to Pagan in his new shell uh, is aboard the submarine. The launch orders come in and he's there to make sure that they are carried out to launch a missile from the sub to the UN plane. Uh, Bob, meanwhile, uh, Fairbanks is in no mood to help Fury or Talos with the code word to stop the launch. Talos then takes over the, uh, the interrogation after Fury shoots Bob in the knee, only to end up shooting Bob himself when Bob suggests that Gaia is the spineless traitor feeding Talos information. So bye-bye, Bob Fairbanks, the Skrull version. And I don't know if, uh, I'm not sure, because since I was a Skrull version of Bob, why he had so much affection for Zachary, or maybe because of the mind meld that Skrulls do. Um, maybe that's where he was also cared so much about Zachary's safety. I'm not really sure. Um, or maybe that was... Maybe they, it was a Skrull family that replaced a human family. I'm not really sure the uh, family dynamics between Skrull Bob and, uh, and Zachary. But anyway, with Bob dead, then there's no choice for Talos other than to make a call where Gaia has to go. He has to ask Gaia to go scan the real Bob to get the intel for the code word to abort the launch. And the worst password ever uh, by a military official for a missile launcher to cancel a missile launch, it is his son's first name. So Zachary is the code word that prevents the launch. But in doing, and Pagan also tries to uh, carry out the launch anyway and is stopped. So we'll see what that means for that character next week. At least I believe that's Pagan because it looks like the file, the photo on the file that Pagan held uh, back in the opening of the episode. But anyway... 
The call between Talos and Gaia was picked up uh, as an unauthorized communication into new Skrullos, and that means it is time for Gaia to go. And then, of course, she is rather easily captured, uh, <laughs> rather easily captured and stopped uh, by Gravik, which we'll talk about in a moment. But before we talk about uh, the confrontation between Gravik and Gaia, uh, outside of the Fairbanks home, Fury asked Talos why he didn't side with Gravik, why he hasn't gone a, or hasn't gone to think of the world or view the world the way that Gravik has. And Talos sums it up as, I'm not with Gravik because I'm with you. So another strong and just very, very honest, straight to the point uh, friendship moment between Talos and Fury. And that's where the loyalty comes from. So yes, they disagree. Yes, they fight. Yes, they bicker. All of these different things. But at the end of the day, Fury really is someone who Talos trusts and vice versa. And their friendship is is very, very real and very, very meaningful to them both. So there's a lot of stuff that, that can be unspoken between the two of them. There are a lot of there can be a lot of snark that goes back and forth and they can give each other a hard time. And, and all of the things that we've seen throughout these episodes and going back to Captain Marvel. But there is a real genuine bond there as uh, as Talos puts a point on it. So friends, Paul, I got to got to love it. Yeah, well, and I just want to say also, I as far as the scroll family dynamic, I totally think that, like, that guy was a scroll. The kid was a scroll. And, like, I don't know. Like, I, I interpret it that he's been implanted for a long time. And that kid just, like, knows a game. Right? And I'm not – no no pun intended because he's playing a video game when he, you first see him. Um, but, uh, like, I don't know. Like, I, I it just felt to me that there was uh, – <laughs> It's possible. Uh, yeah, Look, I, 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 yeah, it's, I'm trying now I'm trying to go back and think like, okay, was there, when we saw all of the humans who were, you know, having their minds melded or whatever, my, or data mind or whatever, um, as we saw all of that, I'm like, was the kid there? Uh, I don't know, but, um, yeah, either way, there's some bond between the two of them and, and Fairbanks cared, but, um, yeah. Paul, let, I like that though. Yeah. Go ahead. Let's talk about the name Nick and the use of the name oh, Nick. We'll talk so about good. Gaia in a moment, but how did Fury know that it wasn't actually Talos calling to him and that meant that Talos was in trouble and therefore Fury needed a hostage? Um, how did he know that? Because Bob, not Talos, called him Nick and nobody calls him Nick. Well, who else just called Nick Fury Nick last week? Colonel James Rhodes called him Nick. He calls him Nick one time in the conversation, but it's toward the end of the conversation. Um, so that's why Fury isn't necessarily detecting anything right away because he initially he's calling him Fury, but then in what may have been a potential slip, Rhodey called him Nick at the end of the episode. There is also the clue, by the way, at the end of the at the very end of the episode where Rhodey appears to be on a phone call. So I'll I'll jumping forward to that for a little bit. So this really, this whole rule of nobody calls me Nick, it stems from a scene in Captain Marvel between Fury and Carol slash Veers, where Fury explains that everybody calls him Fury. Nobody calls him Nicholas. Nobody calls him Nick. It's just Fury. And so at the time, I, I even some of the fan speculation at the time was like, oh, this is how we'll be able to tell who's a scroll. This is how we might one day be able to tell 
who's a Skrull is if they're a Skrull, they're going to call him Nick. And that was obviously something that even happened in uh, with Talos in Captain Marvel. And that was a, a tell. So was that always going to be a tell? Well, it's been used again here, but it's also worth pointing out, as people were pointing out a few years ago when Captain Marvel came out, people have called him Nick. Uh, in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, uh, he's called Nick by Alexander Pierce, which you could say in that case, the rule doesn't really apply because at that time, Alexander Pierce outranks Fury, so he can call him whatever he wants. Um, so that is possible. And also, Pierce was a jerk who was Hydra and was betraying Nick. So at the same time, you could say maybe that's why. Uh, and we did see Pierce die and not immediately turn into a Skrull. So he wasn't a Skrull and he just called Fury Nick. But he's not the only one. Uh, Steve calls him Nick in the scene where Fury is hiding out in Steve's apartment after he's been attacked in Winter Soldier. I would argue in that case that uh, Steve doesn't buy in. Steve Rogers is not going to buy into all of that pretense. Steve Rogers is not going to care. Um, and so especially when uh, Fury appeared to be, uh, you know, bleeding out on in his uh, in his living room. So I think I'm OK with uh, with that one, not necessarily betraying the rule. And the caveat with all of this, by the way, is Captain Marvel came out in 2019. Captain America Winter Soldier came out in 2014. So they came up with the rule after Winter Soldier. Now, the scene happens in 1995, which predates Winter Soldier. But obviously, they weren't necessarily thinking ahead for that rule in Captain America the Winter Soldier. I know people point out, well, even Natasha calls him Nick uh, when he's dying, but she's not saying it to him. She's just saying, don't do this to me, Nick, when she doesn't want Nick to die in Winter Soldier. So I would say that one is also exempt. The other one has people thinking at the time that maybe Maria Hill was a scroll because she said Nick three times in the post credit scene for Infinity War. But I think that was about the emergency of the situation. And literally the last time she says it is as she's turning into dust, as she's actually dying. I don't really know that that's saying anything about who she was. So it's not an absolute rule that everyone who calls Fury Nick is a scroll, but it is a pretty good tell. It is a pretty good clue that for the most part they've been working with since they defined this rule in uh, in Captain Marvel. And yes, we can use a little bit of a retconning logic and and everything to, to make it okay for the other times that Fury was called Nick. Um, but in this instance, in this series, dating back to Captain Marvel and refreshing the rule for this one, it is meant to mean something. And because it, we are our attention has been called to it in this series, it is a pretty definitive clue in terms of Rhodey being a Rhodey being a scroll. Um, maybe not as definitive as him being on the phone with Priscilla at the very end of the episode. But yes, it appears based on the evidence and, and the rule, the Nick rule as defined within this show, even if it's not 100 percent consistent uh, for the MCU prior to, you know, for movies prior to uh, Captain Marvel coming out. It makes within the internal logic of this series, I it's pretty definitive in my mind that, yeah, Rhodey is a scroll and that and look, the. The suspicions were were there last week, uh, certainly for me, because of how personal it was and, and how he went after Samuel L. Jackson or now saying Nick Fury, that it really felt more about emotionally breaking him than Rhodey doing his job as a high ranking official in the U.S. government. So now, you know, another check in the box of, of Rhodey as uh, a suspected scroll. Yeah, that was um We'll get to Rhodey in a second. I, 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 that's a good breakdown of that because that was I loved. I did love that scene where he's like, "No one calls me Nick Bob." And I, and when he says that, I also thought of the gif of 
not great, Bob. I almost yeah. wanted to say that too. <laughs> so um, anyway, I just want, I, I thought they almost went that way. Like, hmm, not great, Bob. You know, I mean, uh, God, I would love to see Samuel just deliver that. Anyway, I, I digress. Yeah, I mean, it's, that seems to be the, uh, the direction that it's heading, but, uh, you know, and, and like I said, it, it makes sense. I mean, I, it was fun to go back and rewatch that scene with Rhodey because after this episode, I was like, I need to go back and watch that scene again because I wanted to see um, exactly where he because I was pretty sure he called him Nick and I wanted to go back and, and see exactly where uh, when and where that happened. And it was interesting just to watch the scene again, because that is when Fury kind of becomes aghast and that is when Fury kind of starts to be willing to exit the conversation, but that's also before he gets in the face of and, you know, gives his line of, you know, I'm Nick Fury, even when I'm out, I'm in, or even when I'm out, I'm still in or, or whatever that Fury. And that really explains more about why Fury felt like he needed to turn it on at that moment. Like if he believes that this is a scroll that he's talking to, he really can't exit that room looking weak or, or anything like that. He really needs to exit that room looking and feeling as strong as he possibly can, even if it's not true, because we see him, you know, collapse outside the bench. But it also adds more context to that scene, by the way, of like, here's for Sam, for Nick Fury and, and why he is so affected by that. On the one hand, it could be these very personal things that he might be feeling vulnerable enough to really worry and insecure enough to worry that some of these things might be true. But more than that, if he's really worried about this secret scroll invasion that's already happened and they just didn't know it, well, here's how deep it already goes. Is they already got Rhodey. Um, and so that it, it really adds a lot of additional context that I think uh, just adds more layers to it to go back into the second episode of this series, which is why I know you mentioned earlier, you know, going back and rewatching. I definitely plan on going back and rewatching this series once it's complete, because as I'm already going back to revisit certain moments, it will add um, fresh context to some of these scenes. And I think make it really fun to go back and, uh, and explore them all over again. But anyway, yeah, it appears right now, uh, that Rhodey is, uh, is a scroll, but we'll, you know, we'll talk more about it as we get to the end of this episode, but in, uh, in any event, pressing on, let's talk about Gaia and the confrontation with Gravik and this scene, her escape from her failed escape from new Skrullos, on the surface, it doesn't really work. It, it, on the surface, uh, this scene doesn't work for me where she knows that at, at this point, she's given herself away. She knows that when that communication comes in, she knows enough about how things work in New Skrullos that the information she just gave out, it's going to give it, it's going to give it away. If not immediately, it's going to give it out very soon because she knows that she overheard this information with Gravik and he was the uh, they were the only two in the car doesn't mean that there aren't others that he would have told obviously the person that he was on the phone with but he she knows this information is stuff is stuff that Gravik knew she had access to so obviously he's going to suspect her she probably knows in New Scrollos that they're going to be able to detect that this outside communication this unauthorized outside communication came into the compound and all of that evidence is going to be mounting to prove definitively that she is the spy, that she is the the mole within New Skrullos. And so it is kind of the worst escape ever for her to continue on as the shell that everybody expects to see her as, as opposed to shape-shifting into 
literally anyone else uh, in order to maybe have a little bit of a disguise to exit the main entry and exit point for New Skrullos and just go straight down the road on the motorcycle. And then, of course, the headlights come in blinder. She crashes and then Gravik ultimately shoots her. Not a lot of effort made to not be detected by Gaia. And I have to believe that that was for a reason. I have to believe. I mean, I like for Gravik when he talks about how this the whole point of this, I mean, it would have been a valuable target had the Neptune mission succeeded in taking out the U.N. plane. But he doesn't really need that. And there are other things that he's going to do to cause World War Three. But really what he also had to do, what he says was essential, was finding out definitively who the traitor was. And now he knows for sure that it was Gaia. But I, I have to think, Paul, that for for the purpose of, of this and, and how simple, because it was very quick, too. There was nothing elaborate about the escape sequence. It was so simple, so obvious that I feel like Gaia must have been trying to get caught so that that way maybe she doesn't get shot in the head, which mm. she didn't. She gets shot in the chest, and then she changes to scroll form, which is the universal sign that a scroll has died when they change from their shell human form <laughs> back to scroll form. That's fair. You, you have a, a pretty built-in way uh, to fake your death with the hope you don't get shot in the head or the hope that the shot doesn't kill you. I mean, I don't know what she did, or maybe maybe some other scroll took her place for that sequence. I don't know, right? Maybe somebody else was pretending to be Gaia, um, in order to take that bullet for her, although we haven't really established. I, I don't know that Beto would take that uh, bullet for her. I don't know any other person within New Skrullos who would uh, make that move for her uh, or make that sacrifice. I'm not sure, but there are other moments in the series that haven't happened yet in trailers that that I remember Amelia Clark showing up in. So unless those were red herrings, I am inclined to believe that, that Gaia is still alive, which... I hate that we're having this conversation again from, I mean, that's one thing about this, this show where I'll, I'll say a small criticism of, you know, we end episode one with Maria Hill being shot. We end episode three with Gaia being shot. And by the nature of things being the way they've been with, uh, as it pertains to death in the MCU, there's reason to question both of them. Although I would say Gaia's is a bit more questionable than, uh, than Maria Hill. So I got to feel like, uh, I won't necessarily consider this escape scene to be flawed because I, it just doesn't look make Gaia look very smart um, in order to get caught this easily trying to escape. So I have to believe the the reason for that is she was trying to get caught because it's easier to hide from Gravik if Gravik believes she's dead. So if that was the motivation, I'm totally on board with it. If not, and Gaia really is dead, and it all happened that quickly and that easily then uh, then I would have some criticisms of the scene. But because of what I where I suspect it will lead to, I'm fine with it for now. I wonder if Gaia's a super scroll. Um, yeah, I, that's I'm with true. You. That, oh, I, I, you, yeah, you, I think I, you got it. That's extremist. <laughs> that yeah, the bullet pops right out. She'll be fine. I, I honestly think there's something there. I, I, I joked kind of, I, or not joked. I, I talked about Talos maybe becoming a super scroll and I, I just, there has to be some kind of like elements to that. And because she's so tied into everything, yeah, it would make, it, it would make sense that she one wanted to get caught. And like you said, Sean, to get, to make him think, Oh, he, he took me out. So he, he won't suspect me to still be operating from behind because I took the extremis or whatever. Um, yeah, I, that's what I expect. It was, it was way too, yeah. 
is it, yeah, it just didn't make it not make sense, but it just it seemed a little too on the on the nose, if you will. It was so. all yeah, it was all too easy, which is why I was like, this isn't this isn't real. There's some right. There's some trick to this, although I, I hadn't considered Extremis, uh, which I, I definitely should have because she was there in the lab. But yeah, she is. She has. I totally believe she has faked her death. And again, you have the perfect way as a scroll to be like, see, I'm dead is you just turn back into scroll form. So, yeah, it, that's how it it played to me. It, it just it would not make sense as a scene. It would not make very much sense if Kaya made it that easy on made it that easy on Gravik to kill her unless he just wanted to uh, she just wanted him to believe that he was dead because that's the only way he's not going to chase her so it, it makes sense it it will not surprise me in the least bit especially now after the way you've put it with the the super soldier possibility would not surprise me in the least if we open next week's episode I mean maybe we open with a flashback but the first present day scene might just be, Gaia laying on the ground in scroll form and then the bullet wound heals and she pops back up and she's off and running. That definitely appears to be uh, where it's going. Um, I also just want to say, though, in, in terms of the the ongoing thing we've uh, conversation we've been having of uh, episodic versus serialized. This to me actually felt like a, a very strong episodic episode. I, I think this actually is the most singular of, of an episode the most satisfying of an individual episode that i think we've seen definitely in this series so far and certainly one of the most purely episodic uh chapters in any of the marvel studios disney plus shows so far because this one really did have its own beginning middle and end we introduce the submarine mission at the very beginning of this episode that submarine mission is thwarted by the end of this episode, but there are other elements that are mixed in to show here's how it's part of a larger narrative that is still ongoing. But this one really did have more of its own beginning, middle, and end, uh, which is interesting enough because this is the shortest episode, and yet it felt like the most complete individual chapter, uh, in my mind anyway, of any of the three. But I I really liked the episode for that reason, is I felt like we we introduced some new elements and, and resolved some of that. So this very much had its own, I wouldn't call it procedural, but it really did have uh, its own individual plot as part of the larger plot of the, the six episode story. So I, I really liked it on that level. How did, how did you feel about it on episodic versus serialized this week? Yeah, I, I, I thought it was definitely more episodic. Like you said, um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's more, it's way more focused than, um, I don't know. It, it's the, I think it's more of a building. I think, you know, to something, you know what I mean? Instead of just kind of like every week you're kind of, I don't know. It, yeah. I, that that's to me the biggest thing about it. And it's obvious that we're, we're getting that, um, the, the whole spy thing and, and your slow burn, whatever, but it definitely, it feels more episodic to me because of that. I think for me anyway, so I mean that's why I like it a lot more. So at least for me, that's how I, I'm, how I, I'm, I'm looking at it anyway. Yeah. So, uh, as we said, the, the last scene is Priscilla receives a message at home and then she goes to retrieve the contents of a safe deposit box. The, the those contents being a gun. And then she receives a call with a uh, voice on the phone or man on phone, as the subtitles put it, telling her to go to St. James church in one hour she says she needs to speak with Gravik, and man on phone says, yeah, well, you're talking to me. 
And that voice sure sounds a lot like Don Cheadle or our dear Rhodey in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, adding to the whole Nick situation, um, adding more fuel to the fire for the speculation that Rhodey is, in fact, a Skrull at this point in time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I kind of wish they hadn't used Don Cheadle's voice. I mean, I, I don't know, like, what the point would be, what the internal logic would be if... Uh, if maybe Priscilla already knows what's going on, but I don't know. I, I would have described, I would have preferred a, a distorted robo voice. Cause I feel like the, the high ranking U S official and the Nick clue, I feel like those are enough clues for this week that we don't necessarily need to go into, make it as obvious as, as hearing that voice at the end of the episode. So I would have preferred they found some other way of communicating that and let it be a reveal when she, walks into a room when she walks into St. James Church next week and Rhodey is there, as opposed to us already now expecting Rhodey to be there. So I would have preferred that they had uh, that they had changed that. But other than, you know, not preserving enough of the mystery around Rhodey, I do like this angle for Priscilla because now it puts us in the same position of Nick Fury where we don't actually know where her allegiance lies. Just because she knows some things. Talos knows a lot of things, but we believe he's on the side of Nick Fury and he's on the side of preventing World War III, preventing the extinction of humans, preventing uh, any harm to the Skrulls if he can. We know where Talos lies in this. We don't actually know. We haven't got a clear answer where Priscilla, aka Vara, how she feels about all of this. Nick Fury was trying to get into it, but the conversation didn't last long enough to really go through it. So that's a good spot for Fury to be in emotionally, dramatically, but also for us as the audience in terms of adding to that mystery. So maybe they've peeled back the curtain too much on the is Rhodey a, sc a scroll question, but where is where does Pris where is Priscilla right now? Where does where her allegiance lies? At least those questions they're they're keeping going for us uh, heading into next week. So I, I definitely like it on that level and. It's more, and also for Priscilla, if you're going to bring this character into the equation, don't just bring this character in to say, surprise, Nick Fury had a wife. She really needs to be her own fully realized character, and it appears that that's uh, the direction that, that we're headed in, and we'll get more uh, more intel on next week. Yeah, I was I was, uh, was kind of bummed uh, Rhodey is a, a scroll because I kind of liked Rhodey being like, yo, Fury... F you like I'm in charge now. I kind of like that um, because to be honest, that's kind of Rhodey like from the comics. Um, Rhodey is a lot more in, in, the, in the series. He I don't know. He he this is characterization overall. Terrence Howard um, and uh, Don Cheadle. Great actors. Um, not their fault. I think their characterizations haven't been my favorite versions of Jim, James Rhodes because James Rhodes in the comics is like, he's his own man. Like he is like, yo, I don't like what you're doing. I'm out. Like he says, you know, he's, we, they've kind of had that with, with Rhodey in this, in these uh, films and series or whatever as well. But James Rhodes in the comics is a lot more confrontational and a lot more in your face. And, Will, is willing to go against authority when he wants to. And we don't really have that in this MCU, which again, not my, it's not bad. It's not my favorite interpretation of the character. I will say that scene with Fury and, and uh, James Rhodes 
that felt like more the comic version of of James Rhodes to me, like from the, what I read for for many years, for, at least from like the eighties and nineties. So seeing that, knowing that's 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 a that's a scroll, a little bit of a bummer, but I'm not surprised because I didn't I took it on face value last week, and it, it wasn't until you and everyone else on the internet was like, he's a scroll. I was like, damn it, I kind of liked him not being a scroll there because I, there, I there, there's something to that. There's something there in that interaction that I really liked. Me so, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, me, I, I, I said it last week, even though I you had did, this, yeah. even though I had the suspicions that Rhodey was a scroll. I mean, I didn't shout him on Twitter, but uh, I, How dare you. I had my suspicions that Rhodey was a scroll, but I even said last week, I would prefer it if he wasn't. Cause I, I kind of want this scene to be real between these two right. characters. But at the same time, it would be it, it was at least a little over the line in some parts. So there were some elements to it that didn't necessarily make quite as much sense for it to be the real roadie. But the way I'll uh, the way I'll go ahead and rationalize that in my mind right now is, uh, you know, there is still some truth to it. I know it's not the same as the scene being the real roadie and the real Nick Fury. It's not the same. But scrolls do actually extract thoughts and memories and i would say feelings also inevitably would have to come with that to some extent that they have all of these when they have these feelings like some of that is there like some of because there is history there that obviously that scroll does not necessarily have with nick fury but roadie does so there was some of their history some of their past that wrote that scroll roadie was tapping into so there are some of roadie's actual opinions in there but obviously it's not totally him and and you have the scroll i think adding certain elements to it to make it that much more personal and really try to hurt nick fury because that is definitely part of gravik's mission is not only to incite world war three and bring about the extinction of humanity also really wants to hurt nick fury as much as he possibly can and so to have roadie say those things to him um, Gravik knows and Scroll Rody knows. They all know that that's going to really impact Nick Fury. If only they hadn't kind of given away their position because he slips at the end of that conversation when he calls him Nick. But it's still a great scene. It just obviously Rody's part of it not being from Rody, uh, you know, t- takes a little bit of the steam a- out of that scene for sure. But at least everything Fury said was was true and was him as far as we know. Um, and for Rhodey, there's still some of Rhodey's truth is still baked into that. What I would want to have happen now is I, I'm guessing that the real Rhodey will come back at some point. And I don't know that that happens in this show or it happens in Armor Wars or it happens somewhere else later on down the line. But now Rhodey, the real Rhodey and Nick Fury need a scene like this. I mean, I know it can't be the exact same thing, but you know, some sort of confrontation between Rhodey and Fury, because there's something that this scroll version is is tapping into that helped inform his own performance uh, in this uh, scene with Fury. But yeah, it it it's all signs are pointing to Rhodey being a scroll, but I don't know, maybe maybe not. May maybe Rhodey just slipped. Maybe when Rhodey gets called out for calling him Nick, he'll be like, I didn't know that was a thing. Sorry, I'm not part of S.H.I.E.L.D. and I never was. I didn't know that was a rule. I called you Nick. I didn't mean to. My bad. So maybe there's still some hope that that Rhodey isn't a scroll, but it it kind of it everything is pointing to is pointing in that direction. I, I think the question then becomes, though, is how long has Rhodey been a scroll? Has it 
was he duplicated recently before the events of this show? And it's really all, the only meaningful things that happen are during with Skrull Rhodey are during this show. Or are they trying to say that, are they going to try to backdate this? Because Skrull Rhodey says he found out about Skrulls 15 years ago. Is it possible that that's when Skrull, when, when Rhodey was actually duplicated? Are they really going to go the route of pretty much the entire time you knew this guy in the MCU, he's been a Skrull? I still question whether or not they would actually do that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because then it, it goes into the whole friendship between Rhodey and, and Tony Stark throughout the Infinity Saga. So I'd, I'd still be surprised if it goes that far back. I feel like it's going to be more recent. Um, but that question is, of course, uh, is, of course, still out there. And, and hopefully we'll get more answers as we continue on next week. But overall, I really like this episode. It's another strong effort in terms of like ranking the episodes. I don't really know if I have a, a ranking of, you know, one through three yeah. for these first three episodes. It doesn't really matter. They've all been really strong episodes at this point. I have to go back and wait for the whole series to try and, and rank them of which would be the best episode of uh, Secret Invasion to be a contender for episode of the year, episode of the phase for MCU fan awards. I'm not there yet for where we're at with this series, but I'm very happy that it's three for three. As I said at the top of the show, as I also mentioned last week, sometimes after the first couple episodes, we've seen not necessarily a bad episode in episode three, but sometimes it's just a, a drop off. There's there's the hot start to the show because it's very exciting as they introduce the premise of what the series is going to be. But then that momentum sometimes slows down a bit in episode three before maybe picking back up as we get toward uh, a finale of a given series. But right now, the momentum is just as strong, just as positive for me uh, with episode three as it was through the first two episodes. Um, episode four has sometimes been a, a, a trouble spot for some of these series. So I'm still hoping, you know, next week, uh, we'll also continue on and, and continue on with uh, the series being really, really strong. So I'd love to see them go truly four for four uh, in this series so far. Um, but I'm happy enough right now. We've been shown three episodes. And as far as I'm concerned, Secret Invasion is, is three for three with three home runs. It's been uh, a really, really strong run throughout the first half of this series. And, and I think that the strength really is the character development and the emotional stakes and taking a lot of time to let those scenes play out and, and let the actors just breathe and be in those scenes um, that are, to me, every bit as compelling as, as anything else that, you know, the more the bigger, more bombastic types of things that happen in the MCU. Um, what really drives that is the emotion and Secret Invasion has been very big on that, very true to that um, throughout uh, throughout these first three episodes. So I, I'm I'm very happy with what we have in, in the first half and you can't wait to, to dive into the second half next week. Yeah, I, I think this has been a really strong show. I, I think, obviously, the strength of it has been, I think, the cast. And I think the I think the, the character moments. The narrative's been good. It's been solid. It's been fun. But to me, the strength of the show has been the performances and the characters and the writing uh, of all that together has really made this a lot more enjoyable to watch than I was expecting. And maybe one of the better MCU series you know, we've gotten so far. And it reminds me of how important it is to have not just good writing, but really good casting. I mean, it sounds stupid, but it's the truth. When you nail a cast, it really does elevate everything. And I think the show is again, writing solid. It's not, it's not only like it's amazing over the, you know, crazy, but I think the performances have been, have been really so good. It's elevated everything on the show. So 
I'm yeah, I'm I'm really looking I'm really looking forward to the series. I'm hoping it gives me that good pizzazz ending and yeah, I'm looking forward to, to watching another show on Wednesday. Same here. Well, that is it for this edition of MCU Fan Show. Uh, make sure you're checking out Fan Show Plus, where we'll talk about Jennifer Garner making her return as Elektra in Deadpool 3, amongst other MCU topics that we talk about on Fan Show Plus. So go to patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or search for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts in order to find those episodes. Also, make sure you're following us in those places you can at MCU Fan Show on Twitter, on Instagram, and now on Threads. Uh, don't forget to leave that Apple Podcast review if you haven't already. If you have, thank you. Paul, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Also, please go and uh, subscribe to the Comic Binge YouTube channel. Uh, recently, our good friend Chris Clow has embarked on an incredible journey of going issue by issue of the Grant Morrison Batman run. So if you've been looking to kind of go deep dive into something and go kind of analyze something that's like pretty, pretty extensive. Well, I got, we got a series here for you. So it's going to be crazy. Uh, Chris and our buddy Javi's and are doing it together. I'm going to show up here and there. I'm not sure I'm going to show up for every episode, but it's going to be balling. That's all I got to say. The, the Reverend himself is going to just, yeah, it's going to be crazy. So go check that out. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you guys on the on the interwebs. And you can call him the Reverend, but to me, he's royalty. So. <laughs> and if you that. want to follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, or yes, you can follow me on threads, because that's a thing now. Uh, I am oh, at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul and for the Reverend, I'm Sean. Thanks for <laughs> listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>